Hey everybody and welcome to the Collective Evolution Podcast. Just before we get into today's episode, which is going to be about Mars and face on Mars and moon and structures on the moon and uh, all that kind of exciting stuff and the research behind it, which is cool. That's what we're going to get into. Uh, I want to remind you that you know this podcast, as well as everything we do at Collective Evolution, is supported by our CE members. Um, and because we've chosen to take that route of moving away from sort of the advertising route and relying on things like Facebook and all that sort of stuff, we, we thought, hey, you know what, let's do this for the people, by the people, and really just you know get intimate and close and do it all together properly here. Um, so we created a members area where we offer all of our exclusive interviews and content and stuff that we have that we kind of keep in the CE vaults that we keep private. Um, so this is all the extended stuff that we have. Like when we do an interview with someone like David Wilcock, for example, you know, we only put out a clip and then we save the other like 30, 40, 50 minutes um, you know, in our archives here. But we decided to put all of that stuff uh, in a members area and that exclusive content is saved just for our members and that's our way of sort of giving back for saying thanks uh, for supporting us by becoming a member so for as little as uh, $7.99 a month um, and you could also support for the entire year and get a little bit of a discount there uh, you can become a CE member and help what we're doing here support conscious media which is ultimately the most important thing and of course it supports things like this podcast so if you like what you're hearing right now and you like sitting in your car walking down the street sitting at your desk whatever you might be doing while you're listening to this podcast it's definitely sustained by things like this member area um, and thank you to all of our current members who are helping to make this possible uh, it truly does mean a lot to us um, so you can head on over to ce.news and click become a supporter and you can help make conscious media become something that becomes the biggest thing uh, that's going to happen to media, I think, in the next little while. Because conscious media, which is what we do here at Collective Evolution, is, I believe, the future of media. And while some of the, you know, the more dramatic stuff that we see in mainstream media and that sort of stuff, while there's still a viewer base for that, I believe more and more people are demanding and are looking for something that's a little bit different. And that's kind of what we're doing. Well, actually, it's not kind of what we're doing. That is what we're doing. And we want to make sure that it becomes a mainstream thing because we know that as that happens and as more people tune into stuff like this, it will help make a big impact and a big change in our overall collective consciousness, which will help make a better world, which is why we're doing what we're doing. So become a CE member and help make that possible. Thank you and enjoy the show. All right, this podcast is going to be a good one today. We got uh, we're going to be talking to Ananda Sirisena. Sirisena. Yep, Ananda always, Sirisena. I've been messing up his name the whole time. I apologize, but it it's happens. A tough one. Yeah. It happens. It happens. Um, this guy is it's going to be an interesting one because this is more looking at the the research side slash the academic side of you know things like the face on Mars, uh, yeah. structural anomaly on Mars, the moon, and the moon. yeah, yeah, all that sort of stuff. So this is interesting if you've been interested in like bases on moon and and uh, on moon, <laughs> bases on the moon or on Mars, those sorts yeah. of things. Um, but Arjun, you know yeah. you've been you've been following this guy's work for a little bit. Yeah, uh, I've been following his work for a couple of years, um, and it's very interesting. He's he's recently released um, two very interesting papers with a few co-authors at, um, about Mars, um, as well as Strange Structures on the Moon, and they were actually published in, you know, everyone's always saying, oh, it's not published in peer-reviewed. <laughs> <laughs> but it's published in... It's published in <laughs> We should explain that. Yeah. Because hold on. <laughs> because we're we're laughing so hard because it's it's not so much that, you know, publishing inside peer review journals is a bad thing or anything like that. <laughs> it's just 
It's more so the fact that, you know, there's times when literally that becomes the debunking factor of everything. But not yeah. only that, it, there's there's so much research, most of which is like, yeah, that has been published in a peer-reviewed journal, but you just you don't know about it. You didn't hear about it. Right. But it's kind of become one of these statements where it's like, well, you know, I don't believe anything unless it's been peer-reviewed. And it's like, well, that's not even necessarily the type of you know, that that's in essence a way of closed-minded thinking as well. So yeah. that's yeah. why we laughed at that just because yeah. <laughs> we have a lot of these types of conversations. We've here. got an interesting article on our website about peer-reviewed research actually that kind of goes into our thoughts on that if you want to check it out. Yeah, and the listeners. fraudulent nature of all of it too. Yeah, yes. Yeah. But uh, anyways, he's, yeah, um, in the Journal of Scientific Exploration, um, he's published um, some very interesting recent papers and dozens before that as well. So really looking forward to this podcast. Um definitely a knowledgeable individual and you know to to see some stuff like this leak out into the mainstream in the form of like you know in academia and stuff is mm-hmm. you know is very interesting yeah and i think that's kind of like the cool part and we'll get him on the phone in a second here but it's like that's the cool part about like when you really think about these things that are quote unquote fringe topics i.e. ets or face on the moon like okay well you know even face on mars for example like i remember when nasa was talking about how oh you know that's been thoroughly debunked like that's not real or this or that whatever it may be but you know then you actually start to do and we'll get into this in the show but mm-hmm. some of the math and you know the physics and the research behind yeah. it that that is published and that is you know put past peers and you start to look at it and go actually, you know, this is not what NASA just kind of brushed off, right? Exactly. And, and there's something much deeper there. So it's important work, what he's doing. And, uh, you know, let's, let, let, let's see if we can bring him in here. Let's see if we can get him on here. So, Ananda, how are you doing today? Yes, I'm, I'm very good today. And uh, thank you for inviting me for this uh, podcast. Uh, I'm looking forward to having a chat with you. Yeah, we are too. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. It's great uh, to to have this um, opportunity to speak a little bit about my interest in uh, all things extraterrestrial mm-hmm. and how it actually started in quite an amazing manner. Um, yeah, well, um, that's actually our first question. We wanted you to, we just wanted to know how you got into this, um, what triggered you to get into this, and a little bit about your background and what led you to, to this field. Yes, uh, well, uh, to t- I need to go back to the summer of 1964 when I was uh, a school uh, pupil uh, living in Wimbledon, southwest London at the time. And on the 8th of July, 1964, I was on my way to school in the morning about uh, 10 minutes before 9 a.m. with two of my school friends. And... Uh, I have no doubt we were engaged in a very scholarly discussion, either about uh, pop music or sports or something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, I suddenly my head was turned upwards, almost by an invisible mental hook, is the only way I can describe it. And then and there were three discs in the sky. I, yeah. I stopped, completely amazed, and my... Uh, pointed to the sky, my two friends stopped as well, and the younger one of them said immediately, flying saucers. And uh, uh, you know what I said to him? I turned around to him, and I said, I don't think flying saucers exist. But in the next 60 seconds, I changed my mind, because quite clearly visible in the blue skies, uh, there were a few, a few white clouds, with three very large 
metallic discs or apparently metallic perfectly circular and flying in a formation uh, which was triangular so the three discs formed a triangle and it's as though they were held by invisible sturdy rods and they were flying very slowly uh, and this was stunning quite amazing because we were used to seeing aeroplanes flying in and out of Heathrow Airport which is the major London airport and we 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 could see that these were travelling much slower than the aer- than aeroplanes normally do so being of uh, being a student of math and physics at the time i started a process of elimination uh, going through um if you like an escalation of several different theories to explain what these objects were and eventually i settled on weather balloons and i thought well i can test that because i can see in which direction the wind is blowing the clouds and uh, these objects are moving in a totally different direction in fact they were headed towards a blank bank of clouds which was moving and the astonishing thing is all three objects went into the bank of clouds and never came out again the other side so it's as though they were absorbed by the cloud or absorbed by something in the cloud um maybe the cloud was was simply acting as a camouflage for something larger in there i don't know because we couldn't see what was in the cloud all i could see were the three disks uh which uh, were visible to us for um, between 50 to 60 seconds which is quite a long time uh for observation on on a clear morning so that was the beginning that that was the big the sighting the personal experience and then what happened was i framed a question in my mind which i projected to the three discs and the next astonishing thing was i got a reply back for my question which was which i didn't understand it was too profound for me at the time and uh, i we we what happened was we were late to school that morning because we stood there on on the roadside waiting for the three discs to reemerge they didn't we all three of us were quite excited now by now i had changed my mind and i believed i was indeed seeing the proverbial flying saucers or flying discs as the US Air Force used to call them at one time mm-hmm. um and uh, we we got to school late <laughs> i i went into my classroom directly because uh, school normally started with a, a little a pep service with the headmaster giving us a pep talk every morning uh, this was way back in 1964 when schools were different and um i didn't want the embarrassment of turning going into the uh, assembly hall late because as a sub prefect at school it was my duty to jot down the names of people who turned up late <laughs> so uh, here was main, uh, a morning when i had to um, uh, uh, put my own name down on the log uh, as having been late <laughs> so that was the beginning did did you um sorry to cut you off real quick i just wanted to ask you do you, do you still keep in touch with um those those friends of yours you had the sighting with uh, both friends have passed on now oh, sadly sorry to hear that 
Um, so um, it's uh, nobody would be able to interview them now, but several people, including family members, did chat to them about the sighting, and they both confirmed that the three of us were together that morning, and we did indeed see three, quote, flying saucers yeah. in the sky. Yeah, definitely. And that was at a time... Um um, where UFOs were actually quite popular. I, I know in the 50s and 60s, they were very popular. You know, there were, you know, documents yes. showing they're tracked on radar and stuff. And then, so, did you tell anyone about I had, it? Like, did you get, receive ridicule from it? or? Well, yes, I did. I'm, I'm, as I said, I, I went into my classroom uh, because I was late and another pupil turned up and uh, I s said to him immediately, well, I burst out. I said, uh, we've just seen three flying saucers. And he burst out laughing, saying, don't be silly. <laughs> flying saucers don't exist. <laughs> so this was the first bit of ridicule I received from the first person I reported it to, which, is, which was a fellow student of mine. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that kind of uh, set me back a bit. I was crestfallen when he said that. Right. And then uh, later in, in the in the morning, I described the whole thing to yet another pupil, whose name was David, and he was much more open-minded. He, he said, oh, what did you see? Draw me a sketch. And I, I sketched the three objects, and he said, that's very strange. Uh, and he said to me, how high were they? I said, well, I can only judge from the clouds, because they moved into the bank of clouds, and the clouds were, I suppose, stratocumulus clouds on a... On a fine summer morning, maybe between 1,000 and 2,000 feet in altitude. So, so we sat down and did, did a quick calculation. Remember, we're students of math and physics. So we did a quick calculation based on the angle subtended by the objects. The three objects together were a little bit smaller than a full moon. Uh, and as, as you know, a full moon subtends about half a degree in the sky. So we, from on that basis, we calculated these objects each to be between 35 and 70 feet in diameter, which are quite massive objects uh, compared to um, airplanes. Uh, and the fact that the three of them flew together into a bank of clouds without making any noise uh, did suggest to us very strange propulsion system. They were clearly not helicopters, they were clearly not airplanes, not yeah. civil planes, military planes, and yet they were powered. You mm. you got that impression quite quite definitely. Yeah, and that was um, what you just said is actually, you, I'm sure you know this, the Pentagon recently released a video of a UFO from the Department the of 17th. Defense. Yeah, and it, um, yes, on the it also had no <laughs> means of propulsion, like it, tre a tremendous amount of speeds, performing maneuvers yes. that defy the laws of physics. So, like, fast forward today, and we know that UFOs are real without a doubt. The next question is, what are they? And we're going to get into that. But so you had this sighting, and then what, what you went from there? Like, I know you've you've published many papers with a lot of other UFO researchers. Yes. How did you get into that field and make the context that you've made? Well, I, I was clearly I was intrigued by what we had seen. And I needed to know uh, the answers to two questions. First question was, what are these objects and how are they powered? And two, where do they come from? 
and what are they doing here? These are very important questions, I suppose. Technically, there's four questions there. But the, the two important questions, I, I went to my local library saying I, I need to find out more about this because nobody else I spoke to knew anything about the subject at school or in my circle of family and friends. So I went to the library and found a few books, um, including a couple of books that claimed contact with these objects. I was intrigued, but somehow the contact stories didn't quite fit with with what I what I what I had seen and so forth. Um, and then uh, two years after that event, I became a student of engineering at uh, London University at the Imperial College of Science and Technology. And another astonishing thing happened when I was at, at, at this college. One, I clearly remember it was a Friday afternoon. I was about to go into a lecture theater and I saw somebody sat on a bench reading a book. I suddenly stopped and following an inner intuition, I walked up to this guy who was a complete stranger to me and I said, I must read that book. And he smiled and he said, well, I'm reading the book at the moment. Why don't you come and see me on Monday? Well, I've finished the book by the weekend. I didn't know what the book was, who the author was, or what the subject matter was. All I knew was I had to read that book. So I asked him his name and he told me it was Robert. And we, I discovered that we were in the same studying in the same department but because the uh, college is very large I had never met him before uh, and uh, on Monday I went to see him and he handed me the book it, it was a book called The Nine Freedoms The Nine Freedoms uh, written by a Dr. George King who I had never heard of up until that time uh, and I had never heard of the organization that uh, George King had founded, namely the Ethereus Society. So uh, that Monday evening, I took the book home. I had to complete all my coursework, so I finished my all my coursework in the evening, and just before midnight, I started to read the book, and I couldn't put it down. <laughs> I, I read the book through the night. I think it was about five o'clock when I finished reading the entire book, and I put it down. I was completely stunned. I said, this man is a genius. He knows so much about science and all the world's religions. And this book is indeed a signpost. You could say something that eventually will lead mankind to the stars. Mm. Uh, and I said, I must find out more about this uh, person named George King because I have so many questions to ask him. Right. Thus began my investigation into the whole flying saucer subject and the contactees. It turned out that George King is a, was a contactee. He claimed contact right. with um, extraterrestrial intelligences and had founded the Ethereum Society uh, to propagate that fact. Right, and I've um, I've looked at George King's work and seen some interesting back in the 50s he was he was relaying information about this is what really shocked me about um extraterrestrial supposed concern with nuclear weapons and nuclear weapons facilities and fast forward to today 
we have so many documents showing that you, you know UFO incidents at nuclear weapons um, manufacturing facilities like the evidence is overwhelming so the fact that I mean that's what really wanted me to look towards him and actually gave him more credibility because he's saying something like that back then and look look what's happening yes. now you know um, but let's um let's get to the the juicy stuff here um, you rec I want to talk about the study you recently published about Mars. Um, yeah. What is that study? Where was it published? Who did you do it with? And what were your findings, basically? Yes. The 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 paper on on the Mars finding was published in the Journal of Space Exploration. Okay. Now the paper was written by uh, Professor Horace Crater, who unfortunately passed away last year. Uh, he, he was professor of physics at the University of Tennessee Space Institute for 40 years. Yeah, that's where he taught physics and researched uh, physics. Uh, and the other author of the paper is uh, Professor Stanley McDaniel, who's retired from Sonoma State University in California. He's a philosopher. And uh, Horace uh, Crater, Stanley McDaniel and myself decided to get this paper published because we think it's an important discovery in Mars in the region known as Sidonia where the famous face is right. uh, and this was uh, this paper dealt with the layout of six mounds in that region so sorry to, not, sorry to cut you off here so there's a face on Mars which we're going to get into and there's also mounds in the area. And correct. this is on the same region called Cydonia? That is correct, okay. yes. Um, and the, the, it was the layout of the mounds that intrigued uh, Professor Horace Crater. And he began a mathematical analysis of the ground, ground pattern that these mounds form. And when he did, he was utterly amazed. The, the mathematical um, analysis suggested repeating angles within the triangles formed by the layout of uh, of these mounds. Well, he, initially he, he, he studied five, then he studied the sixth one, and then we discovered there's altogether 12 mounds in that, uh, in that area. And uh, the, the fact that the angles repeated themselves uh, was very suggestive of something. And it was Professor McDaniel, Stanley McDaniel, who, when he was looking at that, he realized that they form a grid. Uh, and the astounding thing that uh, Professor McDaniel discovered is that the grid is a square root two grid. So if you, uh, if I think you appreciate that ancient architects uh, used square root two, very simply by drawing a circle. So if the radius of that circle is one unit on either side of a right angle triangle, uh, the moment you join the two sides, ends together, you have a square root of two, according to Pythagoras theorem. And of course, this, uh, this has been used in architecture, especially throughout Greece and Egypt. Right. So this suggested that either there is a natural square root to grid uh, in a geological fashion, 
on Mars, in which case it should be of very great interest to planetary scientists and geologists, right. or, or, and the second possibility is that these mounds were placed intelligently mm. uh, and are actually some kind of a, a message in a bottle, some kind of interplanetary message in a bottle. So we had this paper published in uh, last year in the Journal of Space Exploration. Actually, it was uh, towards the latter end of 2016. And uh, for a while, there was no reaction. Then uh, we suddenly realized that there are mathematicians and other looking at this paper, uh, mm -hmm. trying to see if there is indeed anything remarkable about this pattern. So that that was the paper on on Mars. Okay, and um, I was I remember reading in the paper it was saying odds against chance that they're n um, not artificially made was two hundred million to one. Is that correct? That's for the pattern formed by five mounts. Okay, but when you bring the six mount into it into the calculation, it's it's beyond calculation. The odds are staggeringly high wow. against these being. Uh, natural uh, placements. So it, it's the ground pattern that is of interest here. Uh, not so much the nature of the of the mounds. The, the mounds are probably between 100 and 200 feet in height. They're of variable shape and uh, and um, design, if I can put it. They're, they're not pyramids. They're rounded mounds if you can understand they, they could be eroded pyramids we don't know right. the the latest pictures that were taken by nasa using the high-rise camera uh, gave us the opportunity to measure them reasonably accurately mm -hmm. and uh, they're anywhere in, in because they're not uh, all circular shaped or square shaped uh, at least we were able to estimate base areas and um, they're kind of similar to the pyramids of Egypt in fact a little bit larger one could say Wow. Uh, in some cases uh, in some cases smaller but it, these six mounds form a pattern on the surface of Mars which is quite quite extraordinary yeah those uh, uh, and I, those statistics are extraordinary those blow my mind in terms uh, yes, of and I, I certainly recommend uh, people to go and study the paper in detail. It, uh, all you need is very simple mathematics to understand um, the right angle triangles that are formed by these six mounds in Sardonia. Mm -hmm. um, and, and Professor McDaniel's realization that they sat on, on a square root two grid took us a step further in, in understanding uh, uh, the possibility of this being either a natural occurrence or maybe an intelligent layout. If it's intelligent layout, then of course this raises the question, who put those mounds there? Uh, these mounds, are, from a geological point of view, are ancient. Mm -hmm. Now we're talking about maybe they could be millions of years old. We don't know. Well, do you, do you have any insight or any has anything been done to determine what you know, potentially these mounds or even, you know, the face formation, what that could be made of? Or is it, you know, is it known that it's just the, uh, you know, the, the soil or the, uh, the matter that's just on top of the planet? It, it is, it's essentially mud. So it, it, this would be, that region is, is a very muddy area. 
but it's it's cold, dried mud that's been in in the sun for maybe millions of years with with no rainfall there. Although Mars may have been wet in 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 the long distant past and may have had lakes and oceans. Yeah, I actually you mentioned that I I remember watching a conference a couple of years ago. NASA scientists like telling the world that. Mars used to be very Earth-like, and this is scientifically confirmed. Vast oceans, you know, lots of vegetation, yes. and there's a high probability that you know life today exists on Mars, um, perhaps even underground. And you were saying that, you know, the study you published shows, you know, a uh, high probability of artificial surface interventions. I wanted to ask you about um, John Brandenburg. He was a former NASA scientist. And um, I'm sure you know who he is. He he put out some evidence suggesting that there was an intelligent civilization millions, maybe a billion years ago that existed on Mars. And it's interesting because he was a former deputy director for the Clementine mission to the moon. So like he's an insider. Do you know John and have you talked to him about this? I met John many years ago uh, when, uh, when he uh, visited England um, on a trip to... Uh, I think he was on his way to CERN in Switzerland at the time, and he stopped by, and we we had a chat about um, about Mars. We chatted about the face on Mars, uh, and um, at that time we hadn't quite got got around to analysing the the mound formations. Uh, yes, but I do I do know John, and uh, have met him, and um, I do stay in touch with him. I'm quite familiar with um, all the scientific findings he has presented about Mars. Right. Yes, indeed. The nuclear, um, it was the, they were measuring some sort of nuclear, um, um, I forget what material. It's nuclear material, yeah, that, that can be measured, and he, there was a lot of it. In, in the atmosphere of Mars, yes, yes. And he, he has suggested that based on uh, those materials found, um, that uh, there may have been uh, an atomic explosion on Mars. Right. A long, long time ago. Let's talk about th- that. This. Is uh, John's uh, suggestions in, right. in some of the papers that he has published? Yes. Let's talk about um, the face on Mars specifically. Um, yes. What is this face? I remember seeing, you know, the pictures from 1976, and then as they released, you know, a couple more pictures decades later, it got a little blurry. And so, can you tell us about the face? Um, and yes, how the much face interest? was discovered yeah. on. Uh, Viking images of Mars uh, from 1976. That is correct. Uh, we didn't see a, another image of the face till 1998, when NASA released a very poor rendition of the face. Um, that was awful. They would, right. they, they had to pass it through filters of various kinds. The contrast was. Uh, uh, not adjusted properly, and um, they had made adjustments for orthographic uh, uh, reprojection re- and so on. But that is what they issued to the press, and the public looked at that and said, ah, that's nothing but a hill. But, but people are not aware that as recently as 2008, NASA has released much better pictures of the face, um, which uh, are very much like the Viking images, mm. not like the 1998 image that they released. However, people lost interest in the face as a result of the 1998 uh, imagery. Right. But I'm in the process of 
writing another paper about this, which hasn't been published yet, uh, which uh, shows the 1976 photos, the 1998 photo, and the 2008 pictures. Right. And uh, it, it, it's quite astonishing, uh, that the resemblance to a face. But yeah. it's only half, only half a face. Mm-hmm. So if you, you were to draw a line vertically uh, down the middle of the face, you would see one half is a face, the other half is, is broken. Mm. It's cracked. It's cracked mud. Yeah. So the, the question is this. Is this a natural formation that was modified to look like a face or not? It could be the thing that drew our attention to Cydonia in the first place mm-hmm. to say, uh, hey, boys, look down here something going on here which could be of great interest to you mm-hmm. namely the mounds the mounds are smaller than the face the face is about a mile and a half in size wow. the mounds are, are uh, somewhat smaller so i mean like i mean looking at the anomalies within say even the face um obviously there's like there's implications if these things are you know artificial and, and you know being a mile and a half long that's that's pretty big but even just looking at from the perspective of of you know your research here when you see nasa release uh, new images like they did and they were blurry and they were you know not quite as clear or interesting if, if you want to call it that um you know in your perspective why do you think they did that back then um I don't know. It's a question we need to pose to NASA since they have, since 1998, published at least 10 more photographs of the face of, of on Mars. Um, and especially the 2000, 2008 pictures are very clear, very sharp, and um, are, are uh, indicative that at least one half of this massive is uh, shaped like a face, has a clear eyeball and a teeth in the mouth, right. which was something that um, Dr. Mark Carlotto had uh, had suggested when he analyzed the Viking images. And Mark Carlotto is, could you? He's an image processing scientist okay. who uh, did work on the, on the face and he, he said that there are teeth in that mouth area and some of the algorithms he applied to the uh, Viking images did clearly show teeth. And the astonishing thing is that the 2008 images published by NASA show teeth like indentures in that mouth area, exactly where Dr. Mark Carlotto had um, uh, prophesied, if you like, right? So, based on... Sorry to cut you off again, um, but this is very interesting and... Um, Dr. Brian O'Leary, I remember watching or reading some publications of his, he's a NASA astronaut, Princeton physics professor, I think you knew him. Um, he actually accused kind of Carl Sagan of, you know, maybe being involved in sort of some sort of cover up on the, with regards to the face on Mars. And that's not the first time I heard that. I, I remember watching a lecture with John Brandenburg as well, saying that he sent some data with regards to the face to Carl Sagan and never got a reply. But Dr. O'Leary came out specifically and said that Carl, he thinks that Carl was involved with some sort of cover-up with regards to the face on Mars. Have you ever heard anything like that? Well, I've heard uh, Brian O'Leary say that, and I've heard several other people say that. Uh, But, of course, we don't know if people are bound by rules of secrecy, 
right. or, or um, other interests, whether they are trying to do a cover-up or not. And unfortunately, Carl Sagan is not alive today. Uh, however, let me point out that uh, it, after the uh, Mariner pictures were taken of Mars, Carl Sagan gave a lecture at the Royal Society in London where he showed some triangular pyramids on Mars. And he said, these are kind of interesting. And he said they're worthy of further study. Mm. Uh, but when it came to the face, he wasn't that interested in studying the face any any deeper, which was surprising for someone who had a great interest in uh, extraterrestrial life, the possibility of extraterrestrial life and and uh, origins and um, how close they could be to Earth. Yeah. He seemed to suggest that, uh, I, I don't know if you remember a book he wrote with Shlovsky, a Russian scientist, um, where they suggested we might have had extraterrestrial visits every 10,000 years, or mm. the last one being 1,000 years ago. And, and when I read that, I thought, well, if 10,000 years ago, why not now? Yeah, absolutely. That was the first question that sprang to my mind. So, I mean, given given you've been, you know, doing this work and, and looking into this subject for quite some time, um, you know, obviously it's it's difficult to say from a, an academic standpoint, you know, to, to point to cover up. But would you say that, you know, if you were to just sort of hypothesize within yourself, like, do you feel that there's been a sort of wild scale cover up um, of the UFO and extraterrestrial phenomenon that's been taking place on Earth? Uh, when it comes to the subject of UFOs, yes, I think there has been a cover-up at a very high level within governments, uh, certainly the major governments of the world. And um, quite often people have, when I've lectured on this subject, people have asked me, why do you think they're covering up? And uh, I think the prime reason for the cover-up is because they're after the propulsion unit secrets. They want to know how the flying saucer works. How can it achieve such high speeds and do maneuvers which clearly our uh, spacecraft and aircraft cannot do? What would uh, what would stop them from say even if they said publicly, hey, you know what, this stuff's available, and you know we're going to be studying it to to determine what these propulsion uh, you know potentials are. But you know why sort of do they have to keep it so quiet in order to uh, you know properly study or even create patents on that kind of stuff? Uh, one reason for that could be that they are actually indeed studying this in secret. Mm -hmm. And they they don't want other nations getting there before either America or Britain or France or whatever, you know. I'm sure this is being uh, researched in China and India as well. So um, at, at an international level, there must be some kind of irrational fear that, hey, if another nation gets hold of this secret of the propulsion of the flying saucer, we're going to be behind in our weapons systems. And I think that that is the prime reason for the cover-up. Uh, I know lots of people have given other reasons for cover-ups, but I, I think that is that would be the prime reason. Hmm. Um, I wanted to ask you about uh, another paper of yours. You know, it's not just strange things you found on Mars, but what's going on on the moon? You also published a study a few years ago in the same journal, Scientific Exploration, regarding strange structures on the moon. Yes. Uh, this was a paper uh, written by uh, Dr. Mark Carlotto, 
uh, myself and uh, Mr. Francis Ridge, who runs the LunarScan project. Okay. And uh, we discovered, well, I saw something on the internet and it looked very dodgy to me at first, but I, but, but I thought, well, you know, let, let's investigate this further. And so I asked uh, Mr. Francis Ridge whether he knew where these objects are on the moon. And uh, he found them on a lunar reconnaissance orbiter uh, image in, in a place, uh, in a crater called Paracelsus Sea. Uh, and when he found that, I thought, hey, let me go back and look in the Apollo images taken in 1972. And lo and behold, there are nine Apollo uh, 15 images of these same objects taken by the astronauts when they were orbiting the moon. Uh, we soon put two and two together and realized that the, the, the recent lunar reconnaissance uh, images are much, much clearer, much, much better. And they show some objects uh, which are not ordinary moon rocks, for sure. Uh, to us, they look extremely unusual, certainly an anomaly on the moon. And uh, we did some image processing on this and, and published the paper in the Journal of Space Exploration. And what was the response... What's the response when you publish papers like these from like colleagues and you know the field um, of academia, NASA? Well, the the way that the science works is that you publish a paper, you put a hypothesis forward, and and uh, scientists who want to rebut this have to publish their paper mm-hmm. and explain why they either agree or disagree with with the hypothesis that has been put forward. As far as the moon objects are concerned, nobody so far has come up with another paper that can rebut our findings. So there's been no rebuttal on the moon checks. Now, do you think that's through a sort of uh, potentially a lack of interest or potentially like a uh, fear of, of ridicule from you know other scientists getting involved? Or, or do you think it's due to the fact that the, um, you know, the anomalies are in fact what, what they appear to be? Uh, that's a difficult question to answer. I'm, I'm sure the answer will be different for different scientists. Some scientists are certainly quite uh, embarrassed to get into this area, uh, especially the UFO uh, connotations. Uh, others, of course, are quite happy to do it as long as it's a long way away. So they're looking for radio signals from distant stars, uh, but they not, may not be looking for radio signals from planets within our solar system. If you see, what I'm trying to imply here is as long as it's a long way away, we're safe. Mm-hmm. If it's very close, like the moon and Mars or Venus, then that's different. Mm. Well, we have to face it now and face the reality of extraterrestrial life now, right here and now, rather than waiting for some long distant uh, message to be returned, you know, light from light years away. So it, it depends on the scientists. Um, the scientists I've mentioned so far are not afraid. Uh, certainly Dr. Horace Crater, Dr. John Brandenburg, Dr. Mark Carlotto, Professor Stanley McDaniel, they're not afraid to uh, face these um, questions now, in the here and now, rather than uh, saying, well, you know, 
there could be life out there, but it's millions of miles away, and how are they going to get here so mm-hmm. quickly? Mm-hmm. Well, that's uh, that's been rather ridiculous because we have a science that has uh, um, expanded exponentially in the last 200, 300 years, uh, and who knows what uh, races that have advanced even 500,000 years could be doing right. throughout the galaxy. And overall, I mean, like, given all this information, I, I think the challenges, and we, you know, we deal with this a lot here uh, at Collective Evolution based on, you know, when we do, whether it's a podcast, an article, a video, whatever it may be, you know, the general public seems to want to say, hey, uh, there's just not enough evidence. Or, you know, the only thing that's showing out there of, of ETs, UFOs, or anything like that is like a blurry image from someone's, you know, 1980 camera. You know, you hear those types of arguments. So people generally just kind of don't, um, necessarily have all the information. But given that, because I believe if, if anybody did take the time and really spend, you know, a good amount of time looking into the subject, they'd probably have a very different perspective about, at, for sure, the existence of UFOs. And, you know, in terms of extraterrestrial bodies that are intelligent, that are not, you know, necessarily human, they might, you know, be also very open to that. But what do you think, given all your work and, and looking at this, are the implications of if, let's say, you know, uh, I say president, I mean Trump, if Trump were to go, you know, and, and honestly, you know, aside by him would be a ne- several people from NASA that are respected and uh, maybe a couple other world leaders. And they say, hey, look, so, you know, extraterrestrials are real. Um, you know, we know of at least, say, two races and all that sort of stuff. What do you think the implications would be of that on humanity as a whole? It'll change humanity uh, rapidly. Uh, the first step here, uh, let me say, this recent um, release by the Pentagon on December 17th last year uh, and the footage from the F-18 fighter w- was the first time that the United States government has acknowledged the existence of unidentified flying objects. In the past, even through the Project Blue Book years, they would say they don't exist, but at the same time, they would say they're not a threat to the security of the nation. Now, for the first time, we have onboard camera imagery uh, taken by uh, a U.S. Navy pilot. And um, this could open up. Uh, and note two things. There was no panic in the streets mm-hmm. when this information was released. And the stock market didn't collapse. <laughs> Two important things to note. So the population of the world is ready for this information now. Uh, And uh, the the longer the cover-up goes on, the harder it is going to be to uncover it, if you see what I mean by that. Um, One could say that the cover-up has cracked at the seams. It's it's like an eggshell that's been cracking for years. Uh, And now more and more information is coming out. Ultimately, world leaders if they want to be world leaders, we'll have to reveal the truth. Yeah. Yeah. And that will change humanity. Maybe not overnight, but it will change humanity's perspective on outer space, humanity's understanding of the possibility of contact with extraterrestrials, and humanity's uh, view to the future. Mm -hmm. Uh, Full of hope, that we will travel space, that we'll go out there, we'll conquer not only our solar system, but m- maybe one day we'll have 
the technological capability to travel to our nearest star, um, and uh, that uh, the space sciences will bring a new revolution to human thinking, and indeed to human science and technology and the medicines and the arts and everything, uh, including our philosophies and our religions and uh, our way of thinking mm-hmm. will have to change um, peacefully. That's Yeah, and that would be amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, based on, I know you you do a great job at approaching this from a, you know academic standpoint, and I know perhaps you don't like to speculate, but I wanted to get your personal thoughts on, you know, why are they here? If they are here, what do they want? I mean, there could be so many different groups. What, what's, what does, why now? Why are we seeing all this explosion of UFO phenomena, you know, the slow disclosure and people's heightened interest in the extraterrestrial phenomena? What, what do you think the significance is? Well, we must remember that the UFO phenomenon has been seen by hundreds of thousands of people mm-hmm. since 1947, right, right up to now. Um, the the release of information uh, has only just started since 2017 December, when the Pentagon released the uh, footage right. from the F-18. We've never had such a release of information officially before. It's all been secret, uh, and it's been, um, you know, categorized as not available to those who do not need to know about this. So, in other words, the cover-up is based on on a simple premise that only a few privileged few need to know about this, and the masses don't need to know about it. But I think the masses need to know about it. The masses want to know about it, and they want the facts. Mm -hmm. And the facts are that uh, this Earth has been visited by extraterrestrials for a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. And, and, And if we need to understand the connection between UFOs and extraterrestrial visitation, then we need to study the contacts that have been claimed. Of course, there have been many, many different claims of contacts. Some of them are obviously bogus and false, and some of them may hold the key to our future on this planet. Mm-hmm. Well said. Um, do you have any other questions? I mean, I, I kind of wanted to go a little bit into... Um, hold on, let me just... I'm checking my notes here. I had, a, I had another little thing I wanted to ask about... Um, Sorry, let me just get to the list here. I remember, Ananda, we had a conversation about after you published your moon study, I can't remember which scientist on that paper who who had regular contact with people within NASA, and then all of a sudden they just cut him off, kind of? Oh, that was uh, Francis Ridge of okay. the LunarScan project. Yes, he was in touch with several scientists at NASA. He's quite an expert on the moon. Uh, and then once our paper got published, uh, all those contacts stopped contacting him. They stopped writing to him, which is a very surprising turn of events because uh, the objects, we, we, which you can clearly see in the photographs in, in that crater called Paracelsus C, 
mm-hmm. uh, do do not look natural. It's not to me. But one has to be cautious, of course. When you say something doesn't look natural, that doesn't necessarily mean it's artificial. Right. We need to find out more about these objects. And our paper was the first step in this process. So we have asked NASA, let's go back to that area of the moon. Let's uh, take better photographs. Let me just say, uh, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter has now taken five pictures over that area. But only one of them is very, very clear. And that one clear picture we do present in our paper and also in a YouTube video. Right. Uh, which uh, which uh, Dr. Mark Carlotto uh, placed. And I urge all listeners to this podcast to go and look for this um, a video on YouTube, and you'll see the, the objects on the moon very, very clearly. Mm-hmm. Uh, could they have been part of an extraterrestrial base? I don't know. We don't know. Yeah. We ha- need to research this area more to see whether it whether the there is an uh, underground passageway into the moon at that point mm-hmm. yeah it's definitely interesting too because you have so many um witness testimonies given from you know people with verified backgrounds from within the department of defense saying there's some strange stuff going on the moon going yeah. on on the moon yes. so like in and in conjunction with the papers you've published it's very interesting the, there is one one book that was actually sanctioned by the United States Air Force uh, way back in the 50s. Uh, It was written by uh, Lieutenant Colonel Edward Tacker, and it's called uh, Flying Sources in the U.S. Air Force. Uh, And I urge every researcher to read that book because there are some astonishing, there is some astonishing information in that book. Some people may have simply forgotten about relating to the moon and claims of bases on the moon. So this book is is called uh, Flying Sources in the U.S. Air Force, written by uh, Tacker, T-A-C-K-E-R, Lieutenant Colonel Edward Tacker. Uh, And he was uh, in in the press office uh, for Blue Book at one time. So I'm pretty sure his book was sanctioned officially by the United States Air Force in those days when the Air Force denied the existence of flying saucers there's you know that that brings me to a question because you know you said it was initially um you know the, these books come out or or for example let's just go straight to the the recent one you know you got the you got the pentagon uh, uh releasing that video there uh, of the ufo yes. and, and you kind of you think to yourself okay if this is in fact the first time that the u.s has come forward and said hey you know what Yes, these things do exist. We've known about it for a while. Here's a video of it. Check it out. All that sort of stuff, right? To to the to the public. This is how it appears, right? Um, you know, you start yes. thinking of the word disclosure, right? And this has been a word that's thrown around the community so many times. Um, it has so many different definitions to so many different people when we're referring to extraterrestrial disclosure or when we're referring to UFO disclosure. You know. How big is it? You know, what does it mean? Um, you know, the way whistleblowers talk about it and what they're willing to talk about is different from, you know, what people think the government will end up doing, um, i.e., 
you know, is disclosure going to be sort of this drip, drip, like one little nugget here, one little nugget there over the next, you know, every few years or something like that? I mean, given that this Pentagon video has come out in your eyes from being a part of this community for so long, what do you feel um, is coming? Do you think that's kind of the start uh, to some greater disclosure to the to the to the public? Or is it just kind of like almost like maybe to quiet people about the whole situation? What are your thoughts? I think they were testing the waters. They want to see how the world population will react to this. As I said, there were no riots in the streets <laughs> on that revelation. The stock market didn't collapse. People went about their everyday lives, saying, hmm, that's interesting. Uh, of course, there were a couple of attempts to downplay the video. Uh, a London newspaper, for example, had somebody from London University say that the the video was a fake, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, which is uh, quite interesting to me in these days of claims of fake news and so on, mm-hmm. that the, this London newspaper, the Evening Standard, would actually come out and get this, put the story out to say that the, uh, the uh, a, a film released by the Pentagon, officially released by the Pentagon, obviously the, the story itself was first published in the, in the New York Times. But um, I, I think this is a testing of the waters. Yeah. They want to see uh, if, the, if, and I think there has been a cover-up for a long time, how are they going to release this information without creating mass panic in the streets? And, and this, this test was a very good test because there was no panic in the streets. Uh, people didn't go flocking to their churches saying mm-hmm. we're about to be invaded, etc. Because <laughs> most people understand that if advanced extraterrestrial races exist out there and have been visiting Earth for a long time, they have not invaded us. Right. Yeah. Therefore, yeah. they're not going to come down and eat us up for breakfast. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, now, there is a long plan uh, which we need to be wise up to. We need to understand that this goes way back into human history. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, we need to understand that they they may be very interested in our spiritual welfare. Mm-hmm. They may be very interested in the fact that we uh, have been um, destroying our planet slowly. Yeah. And uh, they're probably also very interested in all of our, of our nuclear sites mm-hmm. and nuclear installations and e- indeed even nuclear mines where we mine nuclear material. Uh, that must be of very great interest. But certainly if I was in charge of an operation to um, observe a backward planet, I would be interested to know how far their weaponry systems are and whether they have the capability of destroying themselves. And this is the terrestrial talking from a cosmic perspective. You see, we are a leaderless planet. Mm -hmm. We do not have a a single uh, leader that we can say is the leader of the planet. Mm. Uh, With due respect to the United States of America, which is a very powerful military force, but it is not not the leader of the planet. So if if I'm (laughs) in charge of observing a backward planet, my approach would be to say, well, we need a leader of a planet or we need to approach all the 
races on that planet. Do, do you see where I'm yeah. where I'm coming from here? Yeah. Uh, and I think they, they have a patience uh, way beyond our patience. And um, the fact that they're not invading us means uh, either we're they're coming in peace. Or, or if we, if there have been attempts to invade us, we have been protected because we are like the, the, uh, the, the uh, baby in the kindergarten in the school. Right, and if it's funny because if you look at most UFO encounters, based on my research, most of the object just perform objects perform evasive maneuvers. You know, when our aircraft approach them, um, so I've never really heard of. You know, I don't like the whole threat narrative that that came with no. this UFO Pentagon video. It seems that they're really pushing a threat narrative. Um, yes, that 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 is um, not surprising mm-hmm. because um, uh, there have been rumors that um, there is a plan to to stage an attack mm-hmm. on a city and make it look like the attack came from outer space. Right. Right. So that would work as part of the threat narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think uh, most people, uh, or at least I hope most people will, will realize that if there was a threat, then the first thing the governments would do is tell us that there is a threat. Mm-hmm. Because they're not a threat, the governments have been able to continue with the cover-up right. without... Mm-hmm. A direct challenge to that cover-up. So now, but it just a sorry, question with on. regards to the the government aspect of it, like you were just saying. Um, you know, earlier on too, you were you were saying, you know, they're testing the waters, they're this, um, and I guess the question is, is do you believe that this they um, is just government? Do you believe it's uh, certain layers of government? Do you believe that there's other uh, sort of, I guess, groups or entities or bodies involved in terms of um, what people may call like a deep state or a shadow government? Or do you believe this is sort of, you know, your your typical sort of elected government, but it's only certain layers that have knowledge? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, who's really in charge here? Um, well, I summarize the, uh, that question by answering it in the following manner. Uh, presidents come presidents go. Prime ministers come, prime ministers go. Political parties come, political parties go. But who is ever present in the background? Military intelligence. Mm -hmm. Think about that. Makes sense. So, um, uh, you asked the question earlier, if, if, let's say, President Trump were to make an announcement to the world, with several other uh, world leaders, to the fact that we have known that there are extraterrestrial objects visiting Earth, mm-hmm. that the so-called sightings of UFOs or flying saucers are not figments of people's imagination, uh, but we actually have solid evidence in the way of film and photographic uh, evidence, and uh, we are uh, you know, studying this and have been studying this secretly. Now it's time. Uh, for the world population to know and for other scientists to come forward and offer their services to help us um, try and understand where they're coming from, why they're coming here, and how they're propelled. That's an interesting question, of Mm -hmm. course, for me as a a 
someone who studied maths and physics. Yeah. Yeah. And I wanted to kind of go into the whole why they're here. Um, as you said, you know, the, we know the UFO phenomenon is real and we know that, you know, I believe anyways that some of them are indeed extraterrestrial. And I think that there's uh, enormous amounts of evidence for that. And we have to look at the contactees. And what I find interesting is um, with regards to the contactees is the amount of similarities um, you see between so-called channelers and the information they're relaying is in many cases the exact same. In some cases you have, you know, a, a concern for what we're doing here on our planet, how we're treating it. Um, and, you know, the the main message is we need to kind of have a spiritual awakening, you know, an, an awareness of non-material science and, and, you know, an evolution of consciousness. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And do you think there are races out there right now? Do you think a main reason we're seeing a lot of these sightings and the disclosure right now is because it's, it's time for humanity to really, you know, pick ourselves up? Um, right. And some of my Christian friends uh, tell me that there is a verse in the Bible that says that Jesus came from the morning star, the bright and morning star. Uh, and a lot of my Buddhist friends tell me that in the Buddhist text, uh, the Buddha said he came from another world. So uh, we, from a spiritual perspective, we have to go back to the origins of our religions and ask the question, is it possible, could it be possible that many of our founders of the religions were from outer space? And that's a perfectly valid question to ask and an attempt to answer. Uh, and and it would this would have truly a, a, a meaning on our spiritual evolution. Uh, because I, I do believe in evolution, but I don't think it's simply physical evolution, it's mental and spiritual evolution as well. Right. So w we have a place in the cosmos. It may be that we're at the bottom of the class, as far as this solar system is concerned, and maybe at the bottom of the class in, in many other solar systems in, in our galaxy. Our galaxy is huge. We can't imagine the size of the galaxy. If you, if you try to imagine the size, it's, it's simply impossible at least for my uh, feeble mind, anyway. Um, so in that vastness of space, there may have be beings who have evolved spiritually beyond our comprehension. Uh, on the other hand, there may be beings who, who started the religions for us to kindle a, a flame in our hearts, a flame of spirituality, you know, at different times and different places. Um, but, to, but to take man up in his spiritual evolution. Right. So, yes, I, I think uh, this information is very important for humanity. It should be released. And the, the more that scientists uh, begin to study it, without fear of ridicule or retribution or fear of losing their jobs or anything like that, uh, we need more courageous pe people out there uh, studying the whole subject of 
ufology and extraterrestrial contact and the ultimate spiritual meaning for us as human beings. Right, right. Um, do you, you've heard of the uh, Tom DeLonge. He's a famous uh, rock star. Blink-182 started what's called yes. To the Stars, which is they're working with the U.S. Yes. government, and that's where the video came from of the Pentagon. Yes. They sent it to him. And I watched yes. an interview with Tom. He says there's more videos along the way. HD videos are next. And um, right. I wanted to ask you, with the, regards to the um, the threat, oh my God, I forgot my question. <laughs> I, forgot, I forgot my question. It just disappeared. Um, what was it? With like, regards to the threat, to bring the threat, do you think? No, like, um, yeah, okay. I wanted to ask you: Do you think there are? Clearly, there's been a cover-up here. Do you think there are legitimate reasons here? I remember him saying that with regards to benevolent and malevolent races, that for the most part, we're seeing a lot of benevolence, but there are cases of malevolence as well. Do, would you agree with that? Um, what are your thoughts I on that? I think it, um, I have to answer the question this way. If there are malevolent races out there who have tried to attack us, we clearly we have been protected exactly yeah. because the invasion hasn't happened yeah it would have happened since 1947 so um we have to say who's protecting us then right there would be the the beneficent beings who are protecting us against the malevolent beings um i recall that in 1953 the united states air force detected two very large objects that came into orbit of Earth. Uh, at the time, I'm pretty sure the echelons of the Air Force thought we're being invaded from Mars. This is 1953, remember? And these two objects, apparently very large, came into orbit of Earth and, as far as we know, have remained there wow. since. At the time, there's a scientific paper published which said that these were asteroids that were suddenly captured by Earth's gravity. Hmm. Uh, this is, uh, that was a very nonsensical theory put forward by somebody. Uh, I don't know whether they did this as part of the Air Force cover-up or not, I don't know. But that's another thing you need to look into, is what happened to these two very large objects. Were they observational satellites that came into orbit of Earth? Uh, to keep an eye on us as as we're going out into space and it's clearly obvious that we have had developed nuclear weapons by then, the year being 1953. Yeah. Uh, you may recall that Major Donald Kehoe yeah. Uh, yeah. about this in several of his books. It's, it's, it's an interesting point that, uh, that uh, ufologists tend to forget to look into. Mm. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, now, there was. Did you hear? Have you heard about the Battle of L.A.? Um, yes. In 1942, I actually, apparently there was a. I'm not. Could you describe that for us? Uh, well, I, I've seen uh, alleged photographs mm -hmm. taken, uh, and uh, of objects in the sky. Um, Unfortunately, I have not been able to verify the veracity of these uh, of this film and reports. Right. 
I don't know whether it's speculation or whether it, something really did happen. Several witnesses have come forward to say that something took place over Los Angeles at that time. Um, and But I haven't seen any documented, clearly documented evidence to right. that effect. But it's something very interesting. And it's in part, it's become part of uh, folklore in yeah. ufological circles. Yeah, this stuff has been going on for thousands of years. I mean, I know there's a Jacques Vallée, he's a former NASA scientist. Um, I'm sure you've heard of him. He recently released a book called UFOs in Antiquity, and it shows, you know, artists at the time, and, like, we didn't have cameras, obviously, but, you know, they were painting these objects and telling stories about these objects. So it's something that seems to have been going on for thousands of years, and it's very interesting now. Uh, well, the, the, something astonishing. We have many more cameras today, but we still, people fail to take photographs of uh, of objects because they're surprised. Mm -hmm. The camera's not ready. Mm -hmm. uh, in this age, you think, with everybody walking around with a mobile phone in their hands, with a camera, where are the clear pictures of yeah. UFOs? Right, yeah. Uh, they, they don't exist uh, either because <laughs> the technology behind them is so advanced that they can foresee what we are about to do and take plans not to reveal too much about themselves. Yeah. Even this um, F-18 film, uh, the pilot said that it looked like a huge tic-tac, if I remember right, yeah. uh, and he described maneuvers as impossible to do based on our technology. Uh, and then it flew at extremely high speed uh, and the film does indeed show that object leaving at high speed. Um, how do you leave at high speed from a standing position? <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that, that, that That's intriguing, isn't it? And, and it implies some kind of technology that's anti-gravitational, if I can use that term, mm -hmm. uh, based on what may be some kind of electromagnetic propulsion system. We don't know uh, whether our the people who have been studying this in secret know that's also we don't know because if it's secret then it's a secret and we that information hasn't been released as yet mm -hmm. uh, but the pilot uh, and uh, uh, Luis Elizondo said a couple of interesting things which w we need to detail and report on yeah Luis Elizondo actually said that he was he said that he's quite certain that you know, we're not alone. So he's basically right. telling the world that, yeah, it's, there's an extraterrestrial yes. component here. Yeah. yeah. I think in 2018, we will see more of this and more discussion, more sensible, sane discussion about the evidence that they have. Right. Um, I, I, I know of, uh, of uh, something, an event that happened over an air base in England. Um, these objects appeared over the airbase, and the following day, a whole team of U.S. Air Force personnel turned up because they were so interested in the radar returns mm -hmm. that these objects were making. So, there's bits of information like that. And 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 um, a witness approached me a few years ago because he and his wife had seen an, a massive uh, UFO over the atomic weapons establishment at Aldermaston in England. Mm. And they observed this for 
nearly eight minutes one bright sunny morning Um, and he had time to observe it carefully and uh, uh, so the nuclear connection or rather the possibility that they're observing our nuclear sites uh, is abundantly clear yeah they have been they have been doing since 1945 i think yeah i recently saw an interesting interview with a um he's deceased now but he's a colonel in the u.s air force name is ross Diedrichson, and he said that you know we were trying to detonate nuclear weapons in space and on the moon for scientific measurements and according to him and these are his words he says the extraterrestrials would not allow that they would not allow any detonation of any nuclear weapons like beyond I, earth i can understand the cosmic law saying you can't take nuclear weapons out into space mm-hmm. uh, if you do we have the authority to destroy them mm-hmm. uh, that, that's to me that's a very sensible uh, way of doing things because um, mm-hmm. uh, the nuclearization of space would be a very very dangerous matter mm-hmm. um, uh, you know we have nuclearized our planet <laughs> to the possibility of destroying it many times over yeah, uh, and uh, we have to be very careful when we go out into space. I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. the authorities know that. Yeah. Uh, space agencies have been warned about this. And and, and um, I, I began my podcast interview by telling you about how, how I came across the Aetherius Society and the book written by Dr. George King. And in the 50s and 60s, he said he was quite adamant about this. He said that uh, two attempts to bombard the moon with nuclear weapons were stopped. One was by the Russians, and one was by the Americans. Wow. Hmm. And that was published by him in in the Ethereum Society journal, Cosmic Voice. Interesting. Uh, People can check it. Just go back and and do the the, uh, do the research. Indeed. Wow. Well, some fascinating uh, info there. I, I I think you know when it comes to the face on Mars, I definitely feel like you know over time, the study will go into it that you keep you know bringing up uh, in terms of uh, interest. Uh, I, you've actually kind of inspired us. We're gonna, I think we're gonna spend some time actually trying to contact NASA and ask them sort of that difficult question of like why did you release the picture like this and then release it like this and then now release it like this and just see what they say and we'll do a story on that. But uh, yeah, and maybe we could uh, um, bring up these papers. I have, as I said, there is a paper ready at the moment which has been published, unfortunately, because of the passing of uh, Dr. Horace Crater. That paper got held up. Mm. Um, but if you would like to see the paper, I can very happily provide you with the paper. That yeah. show the, the photos very, very clearly. Yeah, the 2008 photos of the face of Mars. Be, um, before we wrap up here, could you just tell us what, um, like you mentioned this paper that has yet to be published. Are there any more? regarding Mars or the moon or anything else um, in the works? Not at the moment. Okay. Not one, ones that I'm involved with. Okay. Anyway, I'm sure there are many others <laughs> doing work out there. Indeed. Indeed. And, uh, and I say good luck to them. Yeah. Uh, this world, more knowledge, not cover-ups. This world needs more intuition and uh, indications of where our spirituality will lead us. 
the group upwards. Absolutely. And it's a, uh, it's definitely a, a, a mental and, and spiritual and physical evolution as it all happens. You know, the spirituality yes. and the consciousness end of it is, is crucial to all of it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Big... And one day our materialistic science will introduce the study of consciousness yeah. into yes. its yeah. research. Indeed. I'm pretty sure of that. Yeah, it's slowly on its way, getting taken more seriously for sure by the year. We have uh, we have a number of friends in in that space who uh, who are saying that you know good things are happening. There's still definitely a uh, um, a lot of I guess uh, resistance um, and that sort of thing. It, just even admitting the idea of consciousness originating from outside the brain is is a, <laughs> a big paradigm shift. But um, it's or its effect on physical there. material reality. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. But and then, uh, and, and I've seen uh, your um, articles about uh, Rupert Sheldrake's work on this, uh, yeah. which is uh, very, very interesting to me. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, um, we've kind of been wanting to make this film actually called Unscientific for a little while, but <laughs> that's that's a whole that's a whole other subject. That's just basically all about um, a lot of kind of the unscientific nature of of modern science today, in in the sense of. Uh, cover-ups or, you know, uh, chosen, uh, you know, choosing to uh, not see the truth. Omitting or data. Omitting data, seeing things uh, from, from a dogmatic perspective and, and so forth. Yes, yes. That's, uh, that's all holding us back. Yeah, you absolutely. Know, the, yeah. And I the, feel like the, that... The, actually, oh, sorry. The progress of the human race has been held back, sadly. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Absolutely. <laughs> By humans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And human, I think human ego. For sure. Yeah, yeah. The whole extraterrestrial phenomena has something to do with breaking past these limitations. I feel personally, yeah. I don't have anything to back that up, but just yeah. my intuition tells me that. Mm-hmm. Well, I can recommend that book, The Nine Freedoms. Yes, we uh, to you, to all out. listeners. I recommend the book very highly. Please uh, obtain it from the Serious Society. Yes, and it'll open your consciousness up considerably. Maybe we could do a and podcast that, that, with them as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Alrighty. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, share all of your information and experience with us and, and the listeners. And, um, you know, it was it was a blast. And, of course, yeah, yeah. We're, we're, anytime you have new research or anything like that, we'd be happy to check it out and, uh, and report okay. on it. Yes. yes well, sir. thank you, Joe and Arjun. Thank you very much for calling me and uh, having the patience to speak with me. And uh, it's been a, a great opportunity to speak about these uh, subjects. Yes, indeed. Absolutely. And thank you so much for your work and dedication to it over all the years. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Appreciate that. Okay. Thanks, Ananda. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. So that's it for the show today. Thanks again for tuning into the Collective Evolution Podcast. Hope you enjoyed what you heard. Um, you can also join our Facebook group called the, the CE Podcast to talk about these episodes and all that sort of stuff uh, with other people who also listen to the podcast. Um, that would be found if you just search on Facebook, the CE Podcast. It'll come up. You can just join up there. And I want to remind you one more time that uh, this podcast has been made possible by our CE members area. You can go to ce.news and click become a supporter and not only support this podcast, but everything that we're doing here at Collective Evolution by becoming a CE member. Thank you and see you next week.